So before I begin today's message, and I'm going to encourage our sermon audio listeners and others to go ahead and read 2 Chronicles chapter 34, the entirety of the chapter, which I'm going to be focusing on selected verses from that chapter. But before you read that, I'm sharing with the congregation and I'm sharing with others some passages from a book that was published in the year 2017 called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. And I'd like for you to listen to what this author, Daniel Dreisbach, has written concerning the foundations of these United States from its earliest history. An appropriate thing to do, I suppose, since we are just on the July 4th Independence Day holiday and supposed celebration. So I'm reading from this book, quote, The pilgrims followed by the Puritans were children of the Protestant Reformation, and they crossed the Atlantic Ocean's treacherous waters to build Bible commonwealths based on Reformed theology and biblical law. Even before the pilgrims and Puritans set foot on New England's rocky coasts, the Virginians wove the laws of Moses into their, quote, articles, laws, and orders, and divine politic and martial for the colony of Virginia year 1610 to 1611. He continues, like the legal code subsequently framed in Puritan commonwealths to the north, it bore the unmistakable influence of the Ten Commandments. The Bible similarly informed early codes, that is legal codes, in New England. He continues, the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, written in 1641, borrowed from Mosaic law even more explicitly than Virginia's law, mandating, now get this, the death penalty for worshiping any other God but the Lord God, blaspheming the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, murder, rape, adultery, and other sexual sins forbidden in Mosaic law. End of quote. And then he continues, Every commandment in the Ten Commandments can be found in one of the early colonial legal codes. Every one of them. And he said, lest there be any doubt as to the source of the law, legal draftsmen often included references to specific biblical authority for provisions contained in those codes. Now, this author also mentions twice in this book how the book of Deuteronomy is quoted more often by our founding fathers in these, these earliest documents than any other book, uh, secular or religious so-called. And then he here quotes Noah Webster, and I'll finish the quote from this with this quote. Noah Webster wrote in the year 1832, The moral principles and precepts contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. These principles and precepts have immutable truth for their foundation, and they are adapted to the wants of men in every condition of life. They are exactly adapted to secure the practice of universal justice and to prevent crimes, war, and disorders in society. And then he says this, listen to this. He says, no human laws dictated by different principles from those in the gospel, the, the, the Bible, can ever secure these objects. All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. End of quote 
So wrote Noah Webster in the year 1832. And that brings me then to the text that we've read in 2 Chronicles. And the title of today's message, Reformation, Not Revival. I think we can all agree that a person can sin and does sin, and a person, by God's grace, can repent of his or her sins. But what about a whole nation of people? Can an entire culture change its ways? Well, Holy Scripture shows us some widely differing answers to those questions. Pharaoh, for example, refused to uh, change his ways when confronted with the Word and the law of God. And we have recently finished a lengthy study in Bill's Sunday school class in the book of the prophet Isaiah. And we read of how the prophet condemned the sins of Israel and the nations. And then in the New Testament, we read of how Jesus wept over the sins of Jerusalem. In the book of Romans, we have been reading of Paul's descriptions of the church in conflict with both the leaders of the Jews and also the government of Rome. Now also, recall that even great kings like David and Solomon committed sin and were judged. So, to take an honest look at how the governments and leaders of nations all through Scripture are portrayed, we see that they often, perhaps most often, are found to be the source of iniquity and unrighteousness. They are seen to be at war with the will and law of God. And sadly, many Christians have a distorted biblical faith on this matter. Now, what I mean by that is that there are far too many professing believers for whom the flag is above the cross, and Caesar is Lord and not Christ. They see God in service to the nation instead of the nation in service to God. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? There are people, even in our Reformed camps, who might, you know, might squirm a little bit if they hear somebody say, well, I think, you know, uh, God is in service to America. But you really want to send them over the edge. Tell them that the nation of these United States ought to be in service to God and His law. For some reason, that drives them berserk. Many Christians today can't believe that God's Word condemns all ungodly nations and apostate nations. Now, as bleak as that may sound, the Lord in His Word does not leave us without hope. I mean, you've heard and read this morning... We have an example of the national repentance of the old covenant people of God under King Josiah. Josiah became king in Judah in the year 638 B.C., a period of history that frankly is not unlike our own. The world was dominated back then by two major superpowers, Assyria and Babylon. And between the two of them, there were constant wars and rumors of wars. There was decadence and violence just about everywhere. In terms of the nation of Israel, the Old Covenant Church, the government and religious leaders before Josiah, many of them, were evil men. Both the leaders and the people had embraced the hideous practices and the worshiping of pagan gods. You go back and read the book of Deuteronomy, and you see the Lord warned them even then at that early stage when Moses was still their leader... And said, if you, and, and we've seen this in the past two weeks. We read the early part of Deuteronomy 28, and we read the latter part last week. If you do this, the Lord said, 
You will be blessed beyond measure. And he lists all these areas of blessing. But then he says, if you break my covenant, if you break my laws, if you turn your back on my word, this is what's going to happen to you. And both the leaders and the people did that very thing, unfortunately. Now, one of the things that they did to bring themselves to the point where they needed a good king, Josiah, was they were involved in the worship of Baal, or Baal, B-A-A-L as it's transliterated. Now, Baal was a fertility god of the Canaanites and other pagan people, and his worship involved sex orgies, temple prostitutes supporting the temple worship of Baal. And its worship was filled with perverted sexuality, homosexuality, immorality, and another key component was child sacrifice. Some of you know the grisly accounts of how these people, to appease the gods and bring them good luck, they would take a newborn infant and throw it into a burning furnace. One commentator wrote, however, the evil king Manasseh, who immediately preceded Josiah, he didn't take the people of Judah anywhere they did not already want to go. As it was, Josiah was concerned in his reformation, that one of the main cultural icons that had begun to crumble under the crushing weight of paganism was the temple at Jerusalem. So he began a restoration project. And as the workers were restoring the temple, they came across an old book, an old scroll. It was the book of the covenant, what we call the book of Deuteronomy in our Bibles. This was the law of God as given through Moses. It had been lost and forgotten for many years, but now it was found. And they dusted off the scroll, they brought it to King Josiah, and he had it read to him by them. And among other things that he heard was Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah your God is one Lord, and thou shalt love Jehovah thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And from that, he found that God's law gave rules for worship, rules for the administration of justice. It defined God's plan of government and society. And as that scroll was read to the king, he was, to use an old English expression, cut to the quick. That is, he was deeply, deeply affected and impacted. I mean, look at what it says in verse 19 of 2 Chronicles 34, reading from the ESV. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. That is, he ripped the clothing that he was wearing as a sign of guilt and grief. And then, then he did something almost never seen with a government leader. He assembled all the people. And he said to them, in effect, We all have sinned, my brothers and sisters. And I've been a dishonest leader. And then he held up that scroll. He held up the book of Deuteronomy and he said, here is God's law, which we must obey the commandments. We must keep with all of our heart and soul if we are to live and have abundant life. And with that, something divine happened. And let me be clear. Scripture is clear. What happened was not a revival as we think of it. It was reform. It was reformation and renewal. The sort of thing that might happen if people informed themselves of the material I just read to you before this sermon started. How our founding fathers were overwhelmingly reformed Protestant Christians 
whose marching orders, whose starting point for what they did when they came to these United States, these original colonies going back to the 16 and 1700s, was to build a Christian commonwealth in these states based on God's divine law. In the case of Josiah, what he did here, what's recorded here, was the greatest reform in the history of Old Covenant nation of Judah and Israel. He threw out the idols. He tore down these pagan worshiping places, these abominations. And then he moved on into the other areas of the national life of the culture. And as we read in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 27, I'm reading from a different translation this time. We read where the Lord says, Because your heart was broken and you submitted before Jehovah when you heard what he said against this place and its citizens, and because you ripped your clothes and you cried before me, I have listened to you, declares the Lord. My friends, the word of God shows us three things that must happen if this nation or any other nation or culture is falling into hell and is going to be saved or redeemed. For there to be genuine reformation and renewal. These three things at a minimum must happen according to what God's Word teaches us here today. First of all, there must be a genuine desire for reform, and that must come from God's Word. Now, in Josiah's case, he was humbled by this discovery or rediscovery, this recapturing of God's law. So the the point is there, there can be no desire for political gain or economic profit. National repentance must be rooted in God's word alone. But then secondly, this act of confession, here at least in this account, it begins at the top. It begins, we would say, with the president or the prime minister or the governor. Now we learned last week in Romans 13 that political office is just as much covenantal as is the office in the church. Pastor, elder, deacon, president, governor, senator, whatever. These are covenantal offices. Any governor or president should be able to stand before the people and say, we have all sinned. I've been leading you in the wrong direction. I I know you're used to hearing that God is on our side, but I've got to tell you today, friends, God is not on our side. God is against us unless we repent and change our ways. That is what Josiah did. He was not calling for revival. He was calling for a return, a renewal, a reformation. He was calling for obedience. And in something rarely seen in any political or government leader, he was humbled by the holiness and majesty of God. We know that most politicians become infatuated with their own power and their own prestige. I came across something somebody wrote just recently that the reason things go so bad in Washington, D.C. with our politicians is because almost none of them, the overwhelming majority, are not there for political or what we would call ideological reasons because they're very conservative or very liberal. They're there to enrich themselves. They're there for corrupt, decadent reasons. That's the sad truth this July 4th weekend. In Isaiah 40, the prophet Isaiah declared, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before Jehovah. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. It is he who sits above the vault of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, 
who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. So when politicians and government leaders understand themselves and God in that way, it shouldn't be too hard for them to confess and to repent. So then, repentance must be rooted in God's law word, and it involves those at the top. It involves the leaders. But then thirdly, Holy Spirit-driven reform and renewal impacts all areas of a nation's life and culture. Now, the text indicates that all the people of Judah, of the kingdom, they heard the law, great and small. We would say business leaders, bureaucrats, soldiers, moneylenders, shepherds, servants, rich people, middle class, poor, all people, great and small, stood before God and said, We, I, have sinned. Second Chronicles thirty-four, thirty-two, from the Christian Standard Bible. He had all those present in Jerusalem and Benjamin agree to the covenant. So all the inhabitants of Jerusalem carried out the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. You know, if we transport that into our modern setting, if we transpose it into our modern setting, it would be something like this. Think of, say, uh, the head of the Federal Reserve. And everybody wants to know what the head of the Federal Reserve is going to do next week or whatever, how it will affect interest rates. Is he going to raise the interest rates, lower the interest rates, all that kind of thing. It would be like the head of the Federal Reserve, and I'm just drawing this as one example, going before the public in a big news conference and saying, forgive us, for we have been stealing from you by means of inflation, by unjust weights and measures. We have made an idol out of money in the marketplace. Can you imagine that? Imagine the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the, the big shot military going on public, uh, in a public forum like television and saying, forgive us, we have been involved in the unlawful killing of millions of innocent people and we have made an idol of our military might and weapons. It would be like the leaders of the motion picture, the movie industry, the, the heads and board members of Netflix and the TV work networks all getting together and saying, forgive us because we have promoted that which is evil in God's sight and we've made an idol out of pleasure and entertainment. It means that everybody, great and small, every one of us would renounce our own false gods and show our love for God by obeying His commandments. For an entire society to become reformed and renewed, there must be both bottom-up change and top-down change, renunciation of idolatry at the bottom and the top. Now, we in these United States are well aware that on our money, on the coins and paper money that we exchange we have printed on those things the phrase, in God we trust. That's been a part, I, I didn't know this till I started doing the research, but that's been a part of our coinage since 1864. But did you know, there was a brief period since that time when President Theodore Roosevelt, in the early 20th century, he wanted to ban that phrase on the coins. Not because he was not a Christian, but because Teddy Roosevelt felt that that slogan was blasphemous. His concern was that we're cheapening God's name when we use it on our money. And so he ordered new coins to be minted without that slogan. And you know what happened? Well, people went berserk. 
the religious lobby, the, the defenders of our national patriotic piety, preachers all over America, they attack President Roosevelt. How dare he remove the Lord from our money? Doesn't he believe in God? And thankfully, God's name on the money was saved when Congress came to God's rescue. And in a fit of righteous indignation and political pressure from back home, they prevented President Roosevelt's decree from being carried out. They blocked it. And that's why we still have on our money today and God we trust. My friends, I tell you that story because I want you to think about something. On this July 4th, I want you to think about this very deeply, please. That any nation that will not say, forgive us, Lord, for cheapening your name with our love for money, that's not a nation ready to repent and be reformed. Some of you may remember the name of the late Senator Mark Hatfield. He was governor of Oregon, and he was also a U.S. senator from that state. He died about 20-some years ago in the year 2011, 2011. Well, while he was a senator, he stood up on the Senate floor, and he proposed that there be a national day of prayer. Now, of course, at that time, everyone in Congress would vote for a national day of prayer. So, for the sake of political expediency, the resolution passed without any opposition. The only problem was, most of the people, the senators, had not read the full resolution of Senator Hatfield's bill, what it actually said, because what he had actually proposed was a national day of prayer and repentance. And it listed a whole host of things that he suggested we should be repenting of as a nation. The National Day of Prayer Senator Hatfield wanted was a day of national prayer seeking forgiveness for our collective sins. And according to the reports of that time, as soon as people began to read what the bill actually said, his office was flooded with hate mail. People spoke up and said, I'll have you know, Senator, I'm proud to be an American. And we have nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to apologize for. People said, God bless America, and if you don't like it here, well, you can just get out and go somewhere else. They said, we have our faults, of course, but we're still the greatest nation on earth. Friends, let's be honest with the Lord and with each other. A society of people who call themselves Christians are not going to repent when honest criticism is equated with treason. Now, our politicians today, even the so-called conservative ones, they've been falling all over themselves to make sure that the pagans of our culture know that they're all in, these politicians, they're all in with Pride Month. None of them seem to be pointing out that pride is a sin that gets in the way of repentance, no matter what it's pride in or of. Any community of people, whether conservative or liberal, that glories in pride is not ready to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can the people of these United States turn from sin to follow God? In the words of the prophets, not when it's good politics to promote evil and decadence. So friends, it begins with us. Down here, right down here on the ground. Let us always remember Josiah, because he was used by God to show that we don't need revival. We don't need some ginned up emotional emphasis. What we need is reformation.
What can we do in a time such as this? Somebody asked me that question last week. And I preached that sermon last week on Romans 13, and I would encourage anyone who's not heard it to go back and listen to it, not because it's particularly good or bad, but it's the context for which this question came about. After the service, I was talking to a few folks, and someone asked, it's a legitimate good question. Okay, what you said, but what do we do now? What are we supposed to do? Well, what we need to do and what we need is obedience to God's commandments. That's the answer. We need a dedicated commitment to honoring the Lord's law word in all areas of our lives, personal and national. Let us see that the story of King Josiah challenges us to examine our lives and rediscover our covenant with God. We must recognize the need for spiritual reformation and restore the prominence of God's law and and break down the idols that bring his sanctions his judgments against us as a nation. And I hope you realize this July 4th, we're as much under the judgment and curse of God as at any other time. But at the same time, let us draw inspiration from King Josiah's example and commit ourselves to living in obedience to God's commands and to do so with the assurance that He will bless and guide us on that journey. May we never forget the power of a mind and will dedicated to God, and may our lives reflect the reformation and renewal that come from rediscovering our covenant with Him. Let us pray.